Okay, well, thank you very much for coming tonight and giving me the opportunity to share something that has been on my mind and in my heart and pondering about it for a long time. So I'm going to begin with a reading. Just as a mother would protect her only child at the risk of her own life, even so, let him or her cultivate a boundless heart towards all beings. From the Karaniya Metta Sutta. How do we do this? How do I do this? I've pondered and wrestled with this for many years. As a mum, with a child, an only child, for whom I would risk my life and I would go to the ends of the world for him. How could I possibly do that for all beings? I can't imagine. What would it take to have this much love to share? My heart, or I, would burst. Perhaps there's something of an answer here. The sense of separation between me and other beings the sense that we are all on different planets, at least quite a lot of folk seem to be on different planets to me. It's hard, even impossible, to know inside that we've got more in common than not. I don't really get that all the time. And yet, I'm also very keen on the Bodhicaryavatara, the way of the Bodhisattva in which Shantideva says, one should meditate intently on the equality of oneself and others as follows. All equally experience suffering and happiness. I should look after them as I do myself. Just as the body with its many parts from division into hands and other limbs should be protected as a single entity, so too should this entire world which is divided, be undivided in its nature to suffering, to suffer and be happy. Even though suffering in me does not cause distress in the bodies of others, I should nevertheless find their suffering intolerable because of the effect it has on me. When happiness is liked by me and others equally, what is so special about me? that I strive after happiness only for myself. And in the clue, there's a clue for this just before in the previous verse, which is by developing the virtues of solitude and being um, calmed from distracted thoughts, one should develop the awakening mind. So solitude and calming seem to be a bit of a clue as well. So what both the Karaniya Metta Sutta and the Bodhicaryavatara are pointing to is kindness, is love, is love for all beings. And when this love meets suffering, it becomes compassion. And this thing, compassion, seems to me to be so big. It's a wonderful, inspiring ideal that I, like many of us here, are longing to live by. It is, I'm sure we'll all agree, what the world needs. Perhaps it's always needed, but perhaps the current state of things in the world have heightened it. It's certainly heightened it for me. 
And of course, in Buddhism, we have lofty ideals that are embodied in figures like Avalokiteshvara and Green Tara. And I'm a devotee of Green Tara. But this ideal and this loftiness just doesn't seem enough to make me change enough. You know, I've practiced the Metta Bhavana for many years, like many of you, and it has softened my heart. And yet, irritation, impatience, and even outrage continue to be familiar to me. Perhaps they are for you, too, sometimes. So what else can we do so that we experience more Metta for more beings more of the time? Well, I'll just read to you from Bantin. I think this... Some people say you should put all your talk, write out all your talks anyway, all your, all your readings. So, well, this is what Banti says about metta in Living with Kindness. Metta is a blissful, ecstatic, naturally expansive desire to brighten the whole world, the whole universe, and the universe beyond that. Isn't that wonderful? But how do we do it when, certainly for myself, my current state of mind is not that? And although my heart's been softened, I experience irritation and impatience. So, some of you will know that when I give talks, I involve the audience. Okay, so we're having a bit of audience participation now. So when you think of the word compassion, what is it? What does it look like? And I'm going to write this up on the flip chart, Helen. So just shout out your words. What does compassion look like? It looks like giving. Yep. Being present. Say that again. Clear blue light. Lovely. It's about making a difference. Everything. Empathy. Concern for others. And then somebody else said something. Listening. Listening. Sorry? Glow. Warmth. It's really big, it is, isn't it? It's really big. It's responsive. Intense. Sorry? Intense. Intense. Okay. Okay. And just one more. It's loving. Great. Well, you, you all know what it is, so I can go home now. Not really. So 
the reason I asked that question is because um, I find myself wanting to know what to do rather than be inspired by an ideal, which I love. I want to know what to do next. And is there, might be there another, might there be another way? So I've been fortunate enough to have the opportunity to explore compassion from another perspective through the secular teachings that there are for compassion and mindfulness. So I've been teaching mindfulness and compassion to NHS leaders. And I've also been deeply immersed in training to be a Breathworks trainer. And it's been really helpful to complement what I've learned in my Dharma practice. And I don't really see them as separate. It's a bit like skillful means as far as I'm concerned. So how do you get NHS senior leaders interested in compassion? There is a policy statement that says you, will, you shall do compassion and you shall make your staff do compassion. Does it work? No. Having a statement or a policy or a rule will not make any difference. It probably makes it worse. So how do we engage them? And what's happened is there's, a, there's um, people who are mindfulness practitioners uh, and, and um, themselves have come up with some really helpful ways, some language that helps us to talk about things like compassion to people who perhaps are not, well, not Buddhist, but who might be even more removed from the ideal of compassion in the way that we are. So what we talk about when we talk about compassion with NHS leaders as ways in to compassion are three steps. So the first step is being aware. Being aware. If you're not aware, how on earth are you going to see what's happening in front of you or what, know what's happening inside you? The second step is having an empathic response. And this includes two things. First of all, it's feeling what's going on for the other person. So it's having an emotional response that mirrors the other person's emotional response in, in some way. And secondly, what they refer to as, what, what other people, not secular people, refer to as empathy. And that's about what's going on and why is it going on. And then the third step is taking, on the basis of that empathic response, taking intelligent action. So doing something about it, but that's intelligent, which is wisdom, isn't it? You don't just feel the pain of someone and leap right in there. You take a step back and consider. So that's the first thing. I'm going to just make a note of those because we'll come back to them. So the first thing is, oh, now we'll use a different pen. First thing is awareness. Second thing is having an empathic response. And the third thing is taking intelligent action. So 
when we think about us being compassionate or wanting to be more compassionate and moving towards people who are in some way suffering or whom perhaps we're experiencing as causing us some suffering, what gets in the way of a compassionate response? Over to you. Fear. Yeah, fear. Yeah, that's right. So we get there's so much going on inside that we disappear and then we can't respond to what's going on in front of us. Yeah. Anything else gets in the way? Yeah, lack of imagination. So it's hard to get to even imagine what it might be like for the other person. Actually, it can be it can be hard for us to have imagination even for ourselves, can't it? Anything else? Yeah, yeah. There. So when when we feel got at or criticised, that gets in the way of any sort of sense that there might be something going on for them. Yeah. Yes, being rushed and hurried. So we know from scientific evidence that if we see someone suffering, say someone on the street like a homeless person, and we're rushed or stressed, it's much less likely that we'll stop or even take them in. Is that your experience? Certainly mine. You know that walk from Piccadilly Station to here when... At about 5 o'clock, there'll be up to 25 people sitting on that road in a line all the way from Piccadilly Station to the Buddhist Centre. And do you, does every busy commuter stop? Do any busy commuters stop? Do we stop? And so if we're stressed and we've got adrenaline in our system, it turns off the compassion centre in the brain. It just does. So it's worth knowing that that's a possibility. What else can get in the way of, us, of compassion and action? <clears throat> yeah, that's right. So not having a sense of equality with that person. Our views, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. So views about ourselves, lack of confidence and lack of belief. Yes, I, know, I can re relate to that one. So a couple of other ones might be that uh, for me, I know sometimes that I get confused between the ideal of compassion yeah. and how it is in real life. And then because I can't do what I think the ideal is, I then give myself a hard time. Yeah. So because I'm not Avalokiteshvara all the time, I give myself a hard time. Yeah. Do you know that one? Do you relate to that? And actually, it's helpful to know that we have ideals and they're wonderful things because they're inspiring, but it's also helpful to know that they're ideals and we can't always meet them. Yeah. 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 It. Yeah. So what, what that was, Helen, um, and it, is it Nita? Kirstein was saying that um, it can feel too big, that the difficulty is too big, and we don't know how to respond, so we do nothing. We sort of run, a, we run away because it's too difficult. 
Yeah, I can really relate to that one too. So um, what I've got written down here is we don't know what to do. We can't handle it. It's too much. And so we go into horrified anxiety. That's what we call it, isn't it, in Buddhism? And maybe that's also about having a low distress tolerance. Yeah? Or our tolerance to distress isn't as great as it might be if we worked on it. And the reason, but this list is not a list for beating ourselves up, by the way. Yeah. Um, I wonder also about our attitude to ourself. So what does the, our attitude to ourself do to our capacity to respond with kindness and compassion to others? And we'll come back to that. And I think there's one other, which is lack of skill. Yeah? So all the components of compassion, they're skills that we can learn. And we'll come back to that in a minute as well. So part of the work that I've been doing um, in Breathworks and also uh, with these NHS leaders, which in a way feels like teaching the Dharma, you know, to health service people without mentioning the word the Dharma, They don't hear it as that. They hear it as what's going to help them. So I've also been uh, studying the work of a man called Paul Gilbert. Has anybody heard of him? Yeah, so uh, Paul Gilbert is a psychologist who has changed the way that the health service deals with a lot of people with mental health problems associated with shame. He's an expert in compassion, in teaching compassion in a secular setting. And he's, he, he, he does a lot of this work with, with Buddhists as well. So I, I thought I would just talk to you a bit about what I've learnt there, because for me this is very complementary to the, my, the ideals that I'm wanting to follow. So first of all, Paul Gilbert talks about the neuroscience of the brain and the neuroscience of compassion. And he reminds us all that the brain is in a process of evolution. All our brains are in a process of evolution. And at this point in time, we have all got a brain that's reached a particular place in the evolution of the human brain. And that we live in the flow of humanity. In fact, we live in the flow of life. We're not separate from it. Life is king, as Banti says, and we're part of it. We are part of life and not the other way round, if you like. And this brain that we have has limits. In fact, it's not really probably finished yet. Right. So we, we, all, we all know that life is difficult, can be difficult, that it's been described as being brutish and short, and that often life is hard. And yet... We have this brain that's not finished. Our brain includes parts that are exactly the same as the brain of lizards and monkeys and chimps and even uh, other, other, other beasts. But I like the idea that parts of it are like a lizard or a snake. Yeah? And that part of the brain is designed for survival and procreation. Yeah? And we we have that part in our brain too. But we have also got a part in our brain 
that is able to imagine the future and to plan and to take the information we've got now and work out what that might mean for the future and what we can do with it in the future. So that means that if something stressful occurs, we can respond as a lizard. Yeah. So when we were Neanderthal people and we lived in caves, we had to be very, very alert to threat. And we still got that bit of brain. So when the part of the brain is under stress, that piece of bit of the brain takes over everything else, takes over our reasoning, as it would if we were a lizard. And that helps us survive. Because if, if we're in a cave and there's a saber-toothed tiger outside, you get inside the cave or you run a mile. Because if you didn't, you'd be dead. Yeah? Does that make sense? But we've also got this part of the brain that can reason. And the problem with the part of the brain that can reason is that we can imagine the worst. And we tend to imagine the worst before we imagine the best. And that causes us pain. And so the fact that we can imagine the worst and the fact that we've got a part of a brain that is just all about survival means that we can find life even harder because we worry and we need to have compassion for ourselves. It's not our fault. It's not our fault that we find life hard or stressful. We arise in dependence on conditions. Now, I've read that millions of times. Oh, we're, I've arisen in dependence on conditions, but it's like I haven't quite really taken it in deeply. But what Paul Gilbert says very, very strongly is, it's not our fault. And I found that very, very helpful. Yeah? And it's no more my fault than yours or yours or yours. We just find ourselves here. Did you ask consciously to be born? Certainly not consciously. Well, maybe you remember, but I don't remember. Yeah? I find myself here, we find ourselves here in the 21st century and life is hard. And we can bear that in mind. So that is, first of all, the first thing about Paul Gilbert. It, it's really helped me to see that I'm as frail a human being as everybody else, as opposed to being a special person with a Buddhist name, which means I've somehow got to have gone beyond that. Let's now look at something else Paul Gilbert has talked about, which is, what are all the skills for compassion? And I've got a diagram here. And if I'd got here on time, because I wasn't stuck in traffic, it would be on the flip chart. So I'm very sorry. So what Paul Gilbert says is that the components of compassion are sensitivity. I keep using that pen, don't I? Let's get rid of it. So, sensitivity, awareness, sympathy, and what he defines that as is uh, being able to feel what the other person's feel, feeling, feel what the person is experiencing. 
and that's mediated through mirror neurons. And then he talks about there being distress tolerance. And then what he calls empathy. And his definition of empathy is a bit different. His definition of empathy is that it's about knowing what's going on and why. So it's having an awareness of the conditions that have led to this suffering happening. Why is a person behaving as they're behaving, for example? It includes non-judgment and also care for their care for well-being. Both theirs and both other people's and our own. So they're the skills. So what, what I found really helpful about this list is I could ask myself, so Tara Vandana, which ones do you think you're not so bad at and which ones do you think it might be really helpful to learn more about and to think about how I could develop? Because it seemed more manageable than trying to become this all-encompassing, compassionate being who was going to save all beings. So here's some of the ones that I picked out for me. So distress tolerance. So we, we refer to that also as horrified anxiety. So it's, it's when, we're in, when we're in touch with someone else's suffering or we turn the television on and there's some awful distressing news and we can't handle it and we turn it off and we're overwhelmed with a sense of our own inadequacy or, or anxiety and fear. So what can we do? How can we build our tolerance to distress? How can we have to handle a little bit more? Any ideas? How can we handle a little bit more suffering? Exposure therapy, yeah. So make yourself go and be around that difficulty. Go and live in the cremation ground or the cemetery like Padma Sambhava did. Okay, so that's one idea, yeah? What else? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know it yourself. Yeah. So we can we we can do our practice, can't we? We can meditate. So we develop our own inner sense of stability and calm and receptivity, so that we've got a bit more resource to give. I think the other thing is that we can, uh, we can go and sit in a cremation ground, we can do exposure therapy, or we can turn towards the pain in ourself. And that's hard, isn't it? So if we're upset, if we're irritated, if we're angry, we can turn towards that in ourselves a bit more. Something I've been learning in, in the Breathworks training is how to turn towards unpleasant Vedana or unpleasant feeling in the body without even giving it a name. We don't, if we call it a name, I find sometimes if I give it a name, 
it somehow makes it worse because then I get into I shouldn't be feeling like that. But actually, we're having a physical response. How can we sit in the gap for a little bit longer and feel the feelings in the body? Being aware of the stories we're telling ourselves in our head. Does anybody else have, you know, those novels? You could make a novel with the stories that we tell ourselves about the person who triggers whatever it is. Yeah. So recently, uh, a couple of things have happened. I, I had a, um, was in a little bit of conflict with a couple of friends. And then I went on retreat. And on the retreat, uh, there were two people on the retreat who'd never, ever, ever been on retreat ever before, who were very, very unhappy. And it wasn't easy. I didn't find it easy being around that. I'd gone on retreat, hadn't I? You know, so even though I was leading it, I was on retreat. So, you know, I was meant, I was meant to be getting some calm. And it wasn't easy. And what I... Um, so what the practice was, was to really stay with how that felt in my body, in my being. And it was very refreshing because what I noticed, as I, if I was able to stay with it, was that it changed anyway and dissipated if I was able to stay with it. I also found a view in there about my ability to stay with distress. So I found that I'd got a story about myself, which was that I'm no good at staying with conflict and no good at staying with disharmony, that I'm rubbish at it. So if you've just fallen out with someone and then you tell yourself you're no good at managing to get back into harmony with anybody, what does that do? No, you run away, which is what I have habitually done is run away. So the thing is, if I, when I was able to stay with the pain and discomfort, I realised that actually it isn't pleasant and I don't find it easy, but it isn't true that I can't be with it. I needed to have a go and experiment. And I'm reminded um, of a poem that I'm sure many of you will know about this, that I'm just going to read it and you'll know what I mean. So this is a poem that's called Kindness. It's by Naomi Shiabne. Some of you know it, I'm sure. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out of the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone 
who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So if we are to be able to respond with compassion and kindness in the moment to others, we have got to have felt it. We've got to have felt the pain so we know what other people are feeling and yet have the fuel, the positivity and the calm to be able to handle that as well. And metta, of course, is the fuel Metta is the petrol we need to light the fire of our love and kindness. So the metta bhavana is such a wonderful practice to do. And what we know from science is that the loving kindness meditation, the metta bhavana, helps to grow the love centre in the brain. That is what it does. And it means that when we encounter pain, the pain centre in the brain can see that, can feel it, but another bit of the brain, the love centre, can respond. So if we grow the love centre, we will have more capacity to respond and to be with distress. The other one that I wanted to pull out of here is empathy, but this is particularly Paul Gilbert's definition of what and why, it, what's going on here, and why is this discomfort happening what's happening and why is perhaps this person behaving as they are and this requires imagination it seems to me that as we're all able to be with as we become more able to be with distress and pain that we're more able to then enter into the world of others and what's going on for them what's their world like and of course, Banti reminds us yet again in this lovely book, um, Living with Kindness, he reminds us about the words of Shelley when he says, the great secret of morals is love, or a going out of our own nature and an identification of ourselves with the beautiful, which exists in thought, action or person, not our own. A person to be greatly good must imagine intensely and comprehensively. He or she must put themselves in the place of another and of many others. The pains and pleasures of their species must become their own. So, 
What's our sweet spot for imagining the life of other, the lives of others? How far can we go? I imagine that people who we think are a bit like us, it's much easier to imagine. I, I'm like that, definitely. You know, people here, perhaps at the Buddhist Centre, the women I live with, I will be able to imagine more closely what their life might be like and perhaps what's going on in their mind. One of the joys of spiritual friendship is we get to know the conditioning of our friends. We find out about them deeply. Why are they like they are? Why do they do that stupid thing? Yeah? Yeah? And we all know what that's like, don't we? But what about the people we don't like? Or the people who irritate us? Or whose lives are completely different to ours? What about those homeless people on the streets of Manchester? What about the drunk people? So I was staying in Halifax on Saturday night and I booked a nice hotel to stay in because I was visiting my brother. And I hardly got any sleep at all because there were people running up and down outside the hotel. It sounded like they were bashing our cars up. None of the cars were bashed, by the way, in the morning. But was I very compassionate in my thinking towards them during that night? No. All I could find, I was remember, I'm remembering, thinking to myself, what are they doing? Why would you do that? And why would you get drunk every Saturday night? I don't even know if I want to go into that world to imagine it. Do, do you understand? Do you, do you know what I mean? How far are we prepared to go to enter into the worlds of others? We don't have to begin with politicians or terrorists. Yeah. What about our friends in the Sangha? Yeah. How far are we prepared to go with people in the Sangha who seem a bit different to us? Yeah. Anyway, that's, that's a working ground for me. I'm noticing and, and trying to imagine. And of course, the metabhavana, you know, in, in the third stage, that person we call the neutral stage, or even the person with whom we've got a difficulty, is a, is, is a great place to fuel our metta. How am I doing for time? Great. Okay, so then the other area that might get in the way of a compassionate response is our attitude to ourself. So when we think of having compassion for ourselves and compassion for others, and when we think of saving all beings, we are a being. I don't know if you ever find yourself forgetting that you're a being, that individually and collectively, of course, we can see that every, I can see that you're all beings, but somehow I regularly forget that I'm one. So when we say to save all beings, it does mean ourself. And I'm reminded from my childhood of, of the Christian statement, treat your neighbour as yourself. But I assume that that means that you're treating yourself well before you treat your neighbour in some particular way. So what's our attitude to ourself when things go wrong or not according to our plan or our ideals? What's our attitude to ourself when we don't meet our own ideals? Judgmental. Yeah, judgmental. How else? We, we get really hard on ourselves. Yeah. Harder than 
Yes, we can be very hard on ourselves. How do you talk to yourself when something doesn't go according to plan? In a negative way. Yeah. Critically, perhaps. Is that the case? Yeah. So what's the impact of talking to ourselves in a critical way? takes you down a di- a f- so it makes you feel even worse Helen that's what you're saying yeah so it gives you an unhealthy mind and it can give you an unhealthy body too can't it yeah so if we beat ourselves up tell ourselves we're rubbish we're not very good buddhists yeah we've let ourselves down and we get into hating ourselves what that does is it fuels our stress system. So we're then full of adrenaline and chemicals like that. So then we're living on the edge again. So what would happen if we gave up our self-critic? What would be your fear of not having a self-critic? What could happen if we weren't self-critical? Absolutely, absolutely, all sorts of terrible immorality. It it could be, it could be, but what I know in myself is I have had a view that if I'm not a self, if I'm not being careful and making sure I'm you know doing right and on track, then actually I'll become complacent and soft lose my edge and I'll get even worse. Does anybody else relate to that? Yeah. Yeah. So Kirsten no, Kirsten um, is saying Helen that if she didn't have a strong self-critic, she she was sure she'd become a horrible person and then no one would like her. It often isn't you. No, that's right. Yes, that's right. So, no. So we learn this self-critic when we're a child from all those voices that say, don't do that. You should be doing this. And I certainly have those, yeah. When I got my degree at university, a 2-1, my dad said, why didn't you get a first? And we're all familiar with that. And it was because my dad cared. It wasn't because he was trying to be critical. But we take it on as criticism and it then becomes a habit. So what we again know from just a bit of science is that if we do drop the self-critic and we're able to accept perhaps we've made a mistake and to talk to ourselves as if we were our best friend, we actually grow and develop that's what the evidence is. So it's absolutely the reverse of what we tell ourselves. Yeah? So having a very strong self-critic keeps us stuck. So let's have a little bit of a little bit of a, um, a talk in pairs. So what I'd like you to do is turn to a partner 
And then just share with that per person something that you were less keen on in yourself. Now, don't choose the thing that you're, you know, the, the biggest thing. Choose something little that you're not keen on in yourself. And just share with your friend what that is. How do we usually talk to ourselves about that part of ourselves? Okay, so we'll just do that for a couple of minutes. So, this thing that we're less keen on about ourselves has arisen in dependence on conditions. And those conditions might be our parents, it might be our childhood, it might be a teacher at school, it might be a whole mixture of things, including all sorts of abilities and disabilities along the way. But the fact is, those things, like our parents, arose in dependence on conditions. So they have arisen as a result of their parents and childhoods. And then, then your grandparents have arisen in dependence on their own childhood experiences. So where can we point the finger of blame? The thing is, we find ourselves here in the 21st century in a life that's brutish and short and often very hard, even though we've got a dishwasher, etc. Yeah? And it isn't our fault. It's arisen in dependence on conditions. We didn't ask to be born, well, not consciously anyway, or to be here right now. Yet we find ourselves with this thing that we're not very keen on. How might we change our self-talk here? So last autumn, I got some feedback from some friends that I wasn't quite expecting. And my image of myself didn't fit with other people's experience. And as a result, it, well, it was deeply painful and I experienced a lot of humiliation. And my response was one of utter shock um, and then incredible self-hatred. And I was on solitary retreat at the time. So it wasn't very nice, really. <laughs> I didn't know where to turn, apart from to my friends, who were marvellous. And it was at this point that I really began to learn about self-compassion. I realised that up until that point, I'd never really understood it. I've taught it, you know, Lady Mitchell study on it, given talks on it, but I didn't really understand what it was in my heart. And at the time, all I could do was to be with the pain and the disappointment with kindness and to come back to the physical manifestations of the pain and to do my best to turn off the novel in my head. All I could do was to understand more deeply where deeply held habits, views and samskaras had arisen from in my, compassion, in, in my conditioning. I hadn't asked for this conditioning. I hadn't consciously chosen this conditioning. And what I needed was to get some help to understand that conditioning, which is what I've done. It seems to me that self-compassion is, I think it's helped me 
be able to be more compassionate and responsive in many other many ways that I could not have predicted. And it, it, it's been what I needed to take me forward, you know. It was another, and I feel deeply grateful that I've been exposed to these, another way of teaching and learning about compassion in my life. So, in terms of those three steps then at the top, how can we apply those three steps to ourselves? And particularly around this theme that we're less than keen on in ourselves. So how can we be more aware of the impact of our talking? How can we be, take into account and be more aware of the part of us that's hurting? How can we get to know it better? Secondly, what's our empathic response? How can we be with that pain a little bit more and get to know what it feels like and come to understand its origin? And how can we then take intelligent action with our pain or the bit we don't like? And of course, intelligent action doesn't have to mean doing lots of stuff. It could mean talking to ourselves in a kindly way. So I, these days, talk to myself as if I'm my best friend. And I even give myself a hug. I don't know if anyone's ever tried that. It's amazing. And apparently it makes the same chemicals in the brain as if someone else gave you a hug. Yeah, so if you've not got someone around, just give yourself a hug. It's great. Just have to, yeah, it's really, really helpful. We can ask our friends because listening is a really helpful action. Witnessing someone else's suffering is a gift as long as we're not trying to fix them. So the intelligent action doesn't have to mean fixing. It can mean just being with. It can also mean using our imagination to try and understand what that person is going, is going through. So finally, the impact for me of learning much more about compassion from a different perspective has been that there's more of me on board. I feel like learning more about the science has had an integrating effect. So, you know, I've got a scientific background, so perhaps it's hardly surprising um, that knowing about what's going on in my brain when I meditate helps me to more to meditate. So learning about the science and the secular teachings on mindfulness and compassion has made a difference. It feels as if the, the, uh, the gap between the ideal and how it really is right now, in terms of how I connect with other people, is becoming smaller. So it feels to me like the secular approach with the Dharmic approach has been a form of skillful means. And as a, is enabling me, and I hope it enables you, to take the next step. So I'm just going to carry on reading from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. So I'll begin with where I began at the beginning of the talk and then carry on. Just as a mother would protect her only child at the risk of her own life, even so, let him cultivate a boundless heart towards all beings. Let her thoughts of boundless love pervade the whole world, above, below and across, 
without any obstruction, without any hatred, without any enmity.